Are you happy? Do you hope to be? What does happiness even mean, anyway? Worldwide happiness levels have been going down for years, even as more people than ever seem to say that achieving happiness is a priority. If we're learning more and more about mental health, and we're talking about happiness more than ever, how are we feeling worse and worse? Is it possible that the most common ways we pursue happiness are actually keeping us from it? Today in the Baggage Check premiere, we get real about happiness and toxic positivity. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about that time I punched myself in the face on the Gravitron. All right, now on to the show. Being happy. It's one of the first ideas we learn as young children. As babies, few things we do in those early months make more of an impact on our caregivers than our first smile. Pretty soon in our lives, smiley faces become the universal symbol for a job well done, from the stickers placed on our second-grade spelling tests to the reassuring emojis that tell us that all is well when we check in on a friend over text. Parents across the globe say that for their kid to be happy is their most important priority, and some of them may even mean it. The pursuit of happiness is even built into the fabric of the United States government. To say that many people consider happiness their ultimate, most important goal in life is probably not something that would be disputed. But happiness rates are sinking. Multiple studies show this in various populations over time, even aside from variations in the economy, which typically was what most predicted large-scale changes in happiness. So what is going on? If so many of us view happiness as something so crucial to attain, why does it seem to be so out of reach? Psychological research is progressing forward at a breakneck pace. There are more self-help gurus out there than ever before. And yep, I suppose I'm part of that particular problem. But why are we just not seeing results? Why are all these tools not actually leading people to achieve happiness in the ways they want? I can't pretend to have all the answers. But today I want to explore what psychological research has to say about the very way that we think of happiness. And how think positive probably does more harm than good. And how even if you think you don't contribute to toxic positivity, there are ways it's seeped into our culture, and for some of us, our parenting, that might surprise you. I want to get specific about the very real possibility that we're rigging the game against ourselves, that we often go about seeking happiness in ways that are bound to keep us from attaining it. For so many people suffering from chronic stress, depression, and anxiety, this paradox defines their lives. They want so much to be happy, and yet it feels farther and farther out of their reach. Let's start with two different conceptualizations of happiness, dating back all the way to Greek philosophers. Hedonic happiness, that's pleasure, comfort, pure enjoyment, the caramel cake that tastes really good, or the ease of having the trip to the Department of Motor Vehicles go smoothly. All right, bad example on the last one, that's out of reach. But that's hedonic happiness, comfort, pleasure, ease. 
Whereas eudaimonic happiness, that goes a little deeper. It's about a sense of meaning. Sometimes it's not as perfectly enjoyable. Sometimes it even involves a struggle. But it might even be more powerful than hedonic happiness because it involves the feeling that the tough stuff is worth it. That we have a deeper sense of purpose beyond just things being easy or tasting good. That it matters that we're here on earth and that we are connected to values that are greater than just our immediate mood or our immediate pleasure. The truth is, when folks look back at the end of their lives, it is typically being connected to a deeper sense of meaning that is associated with the most profound well-being, not merely having had a pleasurable life. Even people who have been through some horrific things, when they can cultivate a sense of meaning, there's more significant fulfillment than for those folks who simply had a lot of enjoyable moments. This idea has been out there in the modern world for a long time, and it owes so much to Viktor Frankl, the concentration camp survivor whose classic book Man's Search for Meaning led a cultural movement and changed psychotherapy in such impactful ways. This idea that it's not just about feeling good, it's about being connected to something deeper, it's so important. The pleasure versus meaning difference plays out so much with people who seem to have it all on the surface, whether they're a celebrity or just that woman you went to high school with who's all over your social media. We imagine that people who have access to all the pleasurable things in life, which typically involves having the money to pay for them, automatically should be happier. Delicious food, the most luxurious vacations, freedom from mundane responsibilities, partners with job titles like internationally known underwear model. There's no limit to things that rich people seem to be able to have access to that other people feel jealous of. And yet the story of the celebrity flameout when it comes to mental health has almost become a cliché. So many folks in that upper echelon of riches and fame struggle mightily with depression, substance abuse, and a sense of emptiness. They can tell you themselves that there's a huge difference between having access to innumerable pleasures versus actually feeling a deeper sense of purpose. In fact, paradoxically, sometimes when good stuff comes too easily, it actually makes us feel even more empty. Because then, what do we have to work for? You see that struggle with people who are newly retired, too. They've been looking forward to the day for so long, and now it's here. But they don't really know what to do with themselves. That often has to do with something we call the myth of arrival, which we'll talk about here a lot at Baggage Check. But it also has to do with our perception of time. There's so much interesting research on our concept of time. And everybody knows that they tend to feel unhappy when they feel like there's not enough time. But also, people who feel like they have too much time on their hands tend to struggle emotionally as well. Why? Because it makes them feel like they're not really challenged, or that they're not really being productive and moving towards something. Most folks need a sense of working towards something that matters. They imagine that they would have loved spending all this free time solely doing pleasurable things, but at the end of the day, it feels emptier than they might have imagined especially if they haven't found a way to have it feel meaningful or still cultivate a sense of purpose. Of course, pleasurable things are so important. 
Moments of simple joy are crucial for well-being. But pleasurable moments are insufficient on their own. There's a huge difference between the joy that comes from fleeting pleasures versus the joy that comes from something that has a deeper meaning. Oftentimes, this has to do with our values. We can think of values as the guideposts to what matters for us, the types of beliefs that guide our actions. They can always be a work in progress. They might change over time. But the more that we're connected to our values, the more we feel those deeper moments in life, the ones that help anchor us to a sense of purpose, rather than simply giving us fleeting moments of titillation or dopamine rushes. Speaking of dopamine rushes, this pleasure versus meaning battle has really been true in what I see when working with folks who are recovering from addiction. Many of us might assume that the goals of recovery are to be quote-unquote happier day-to-day in the most obvious of measures, that when the wreckage of addiction has abated, life is automatically more joyous and more simple. But in reality, the most lasting recovery tends to happen among people who find a way to engage with the hard feelings too. Maybe in the throes of addiction, they had used their substance to try to turn away from sadness or fear or anger, to not feel anything, or to feel a rush that initially felt like happiness, at least before things got complicated with their addiction. But now that they're sober, they're ready to show up for those hard emotions. They're ready to engage. They're not afraid of them anymore. And those emotions might not always make them perfectly happy, but it makes them fully present in their life. They're feeling everything now, and it's not all happiness, but it makes them feel fuller and less afraid of their own minds and hearts. And that's pretty wonderful in its own right. There are parallels with depression recovery, too. I think a lot of people think the opposite of depression is pleasure or pure hedonic happiness, but it's not that simple. The opposite of depression is probably better seen as being able to fully show up, to have a sense of connection, a sense of depth and fullness rather than emptiness, to be able to engage with the hard times rather than shrink away from them. I had a client once who struggled mightily with depression who referred to his new mindset and recovery as engaging with the fabric of life. I thought that was beautiful because it meant really living for all of it. It didn't mean smiling for the camera all the time, but it meant believing that fully owning your own life would always be worth it, no matter what that life might bring. And believing that you can handle it. That's very different than, just think happy thoughts, be positive. Or, don't worry, be happy. Great song, of course. Who doesn't love Bobby McFerrin? He's amazing. He and Yo-Yo Ma together on Hush Little Baby. I digress, but don't worry, be happy. Amazing feat of acapella, but not the soundest of psychological advice. When we tell ourselves that we should only feel happiness or only think happy thoughts, we set ourselves up to be completely unequipped to manage the inevitable painful moments. The moments that will always come as part of that fabric of life. That's toxic positivity in a nutshell. Be happy or else. Focusing on trying to be happy at the expense of your actual mental health or at the expense of dealing with what's really going on. I think what makes all of this particularly hard in modern culture 
is that we've started to view happiness as the snapshot, like an arrival point. We often see happiness as the idea of experiencing crystallized pleasure, as an achievement to be captured and shown off. It's seen as an end result rather than a growth process. And worse yet, we often feel like we need to display it for everyone else's consumption. So we're starting to see this creepy gap between people's performance of being happy versus what they might really be feeling inside. It's like expressing joy for everyone else's sake or for building your brand instead of actually giving yourself the space to connect with life in a deeper way that doesn't always involve smiley faces. Now so many of us are putting on a constant performance. We've gotten used to our mood being under surveillance. I mean, social media literally demands that of us. How are we feeling? What do we have to pronounce to the world about our mood right now? Which emoji is most appropriate for our innermost mood at this very moment? And be careful because your boss from your last job might see it. What can we post that is edited and curated and calculated and optimized and makes our teeth look white and our lives look like we arrived and have made it? We do this to ourselves and often to our children if we have them. We create this demand that part of our very existence requires showing everyone else that we are happy. And as mentioned, there seems to be a greater and greater gap between what is shown on social media and what is really going on. I know right now some of us are saying, I reject that, I'm not on social media, or I'm very careful when I'm there to show the real me. Hey, you're saying, at least I'm not like that one friend we all have, the one who posts constant lovey-dovey messages about their partner, whereas in reality, we can all guess that they're about a hair's breadth away from breaking up in a screaming match about who buys the dog food more often. But I'm talking about something even more insidious that so many of us are a part of without realizing it. It's the idea of the branding of happiness, the notion of turning wellness into a product to be sold. This concept that you need fixing, so it creates this demand that every moment or snapshot should be a piece of evidence that you're doing something right, that you're a project constantly being optimized. You can see this play out in real time in the field of influencers. Even if you're not on social media, you're part of a larger culture, most likely, where this is the direction we're headed. And we can trace back some massive changes over just the past decade or two. Take the group that used to call themselves mommy bloggers, for instance. In those early days of mommy bloggers, I'm talking about the prehistoric times of the early 2000s, pre-smartphone, which probably is not insignificant here, the lack of smartphones in the early blogging days. Anyway, many of those mommy bloggers showed their mess, their vulnerability, and their occasional moments of desperation. They were hilarious and imperfect and relatable. They connected with their audience. But once social media took over and things became more visual with smartphones and the ease of taking pictures, people developed the idea of building their own brands vulnerability was no longer as acceptable. Instead, people felt like they needed to project lifestyles to aspire to. I want everyone to look up to me. Vulnerability was now only useful if it was sponsored very beautifully and wrapped up in a bow of how triumphant it was to be vulnerable. Vulnerability was a means to an end to be happy. Box checked. 
No longer were moms admitting to how disastrous things felt or how many different body fluids a car seat might contain. Instead, the equivalent of the mommy blogger became an influencer. You hear that word? It's very different. I'm no longer here to connect or tell my story. I'm here to tell you how to live. Now they were posting staged photos that were meant to inspire about what everyone else should be doing. Fonts got fancier, product deals got more plentiful. It was no longer about equality or community or shared chaos or the camaraderie of being together with people who didn't feel like they had all the answers. Now it was about one person set apart from the rest, maximizing their followers. I mean, the word influencer, the word follower. Think about what those terms mean. It's the opposite of connection. We're not all in this together anymore. There is someone who is better than the rest and has achieved perfection and happiness in a way that I have not, and I need to catch up to them somehow. Except I never can, because I'll always be behind. I'm following. I mean, seriously, this terminology, even the word fan, sounds more equal. So these changes, from bloggers telling stories to influencers building their brand, it'd be one thing if the new influencer version was just... I don't know, selling diapers that didn't leak. But instead, they're selling the very idea of happiness attainment. They're selling their inspiration, the notion that maybe someday you could be as happy as them if only you try hard enough. And it's often this rickety idea of happiness they're peddling, the hedonic happiness. Look how beautiful my outfit is. Look how tasty this restaurant meal looks. Look how perfectly organized my cotton balls are. The message of so many influencers and lifestyle gurus is, I've done it. I've gotten here. Things are in place and finished. I have arrived. I am happy. Happiness becomes a dictum, a command. If you're good enough or you buy the right essential oils, here's where you can achieve happiness. There's a whole other toxic and short-sighted and devastating angle of this mindset And that's that it ignores all the societal ills that disproportionately affect various marginalized communities. By pretending that if you just work hard enough, you too can be happy, we get out of taking a real look at systemic racism, at large-scale trauma, at implicit bias and discrimination and poverty, and how our economic system is rigged against certain people. We ignore the very nature of privilege because, once again, we assume that happiness is the ultimate achievement that reflects just working hard enough for it. I remember seeing a photo of a kitchen when I was researching some mundane thing about where to keep my oversized spatulas or something. And front and center in one picture was one of those pretty wooden scripted signs with the funky fonts, a sign about rules of our house. Sandwiched in between, show compassion, oh, that sounds good, and love each other, oh, that's nice, was this. Be happy. I was not surprised to see it, but I was disheartened. The message of that is that if you're not feeling happy in any given moment, you haven't achieved what you're supposed to. Or even more dangerous, you're literally not following the rules. It's a rule, I tell you. Feel that happiness. Do you hear me? Wash your hands, don't run with scissors, and be happy, for God's sake. 
Now, a wooden sign might seem like no big deal, but I couldn't shake the idea that a kid who grows up looking up at that thing 20 times a day, they're going to be much more likely to view certain uncomfortable feelings as unacceptable. And when you start believing that certain feelings are unacceptable, it can lead to some pretty serious stuff, like trying to avoid them and escape them at all costs. Here's the thing, maybe you've never heard the phrase mommy blogger, or you stay the heck away from Instagram, or you have nothing to do with influencer culture. But we all probably have a little influencer in us, where we're performing our lives rather than experiencing them. Maybe for our colleagues, our friends, our family, our neighbors. The idea that somehow a moment is more valid if it's shown off for everyone else. There's so much to say on that and the mindset of social media. And a lot of folks have said it very eloquently already out there in the world. We'll have to have them on the show sometime. So I won't belabor the social media point now, and it's certainly not all bad. But in the context of happiness, I think it's not talked about enough. This idea that happiness itself has become something to display, something to put on a performance of for other people. That instead of that eudaimonic happiness that's about depth or growth or struggle or meaning, happiness instead is something you wear, something you show off as an achievement. I mean, honestly, just the sheer amount of photography that we take, where so many times we have to pose and smile, or we tell our kids to pose and smile, it reinforces once again the idea that you need to be happy in order to please everyone else, in order to create a narrative. Never in human history have people been expected to smile so much throughout the day for someone else's sake, for the sake of an image. The smiles are totally different, too. The natural one you'd have when chuckling to yourself versus the one you put on for others on demand for a photo. But that's what this superficial happiness has become, a requirement for public life. And of course, it stands to reason that so many of us aren't really happy when we're smiling for those selfies. Maybe just because we're having a bad day, or in that very moment, we needed to go to the bathroom. But the idea becomes more and more that anything short of that display of happiness is not acceptable. You can see it by how automatically people put on that fake smile. Sort of makes me laugh, because have you ever seen photos of people back in the earliest days of photography? Those folks weren't messing around with smirking at anybody. Maybe because taking pictures took like 19 hours, but they were grimacing like they were on their way to a colonoscopy. Screw the smiling, they said. Life is tough, but here we are. We've shown up. Take the picture with that crazy newfangled contraption and let's get on with it. No toxic positivity here in 1884. My goodness, what a difference from our modern culture. Now, some of you might be thinking, but what about all the rancor online? The explosive arguments and the reality show-level drama and the controversies and trolls. The tweet wars and the think pieces and the backlashes to the think pieces and the think pieces about the backlashes to the think pieces. The online bullying. There's plenty of negative emotion being expressed, you might be saying. And I totally agree with you. But here's the thing. As I see it, those negative emotions are often expressed in inflammatory and dysfunctional ways. And I think that's precisely because of the problem we're talking about. Everyone is under so much pressure to perform and to present this idealized image that when there is disagreement or frustration or conflict, it short-circuits the system. 
people boil over and don't know what to do with it. Their ability to manage the difficulty in a more civilized or measured or functional way just isn't there because they haven't had practice. Honestly, in modern life, this is trickling down to younger generations at earlier and earlier and earlier ages. And I do think that even if you're not raising kids, or you don't even like kids, or you're raising kids and you don't like kids, this is affecting our culture. Another trend that seems here to stay but really exemplifies this to me is sleepaway camps that create constant photo streams for the parents back home to see their children in. It's become a rite of passage if you send your kid away to a camp, then you eagerly await this influx of photos at the end of the day, sometimes every single day, so that you can scour them to make sure that your kid has the right amount of joy expressed while they create their lumpy pottery. I get it. I get the temptation strongly. But the whole idea really breaks my heart overall. First of all, sleepaway camp is traditionally something that provides some kind of break from home, some kind of opportunity to explore parts of yourself or try on a new identity aside from your parents, aside from your regular home life, to build some independence. But now there's a literal portal to your parents that follows you around at the sleepaway camp, demanding that you perform for everyone who will see those photos. And then your parents might post those photos further to enlarge the audience. I thought sleepaway camp was about finally getting to show some independence and not having to be scrutinized by your parents. What if the shower stalls are just gross or whatever watery gruel they're serving for dinner was terrible and you just don't want to have to look excited? What if you're missing your best friend from home or there's drama with new friends and you just want to have a quiet day out in nature without having to pose for someone? If you can't do that at a sleepaway camp, what's happening? Once again, the performance of happiness has become such a demand and our kids are absorbing it. It's really no wonder that kid and teen mental health is really in a crisis point. There have always been pressures, but now they even seep into spaces where they never were before. Surveillance of our kids' whereabouts and surveillance of their feelings, too. And again, this isn't just about kids or parenting. This is about a really significant shift in our culture. And I know plenty of parents do help their kids own their feelings and talk openly about mental health issues. But then we still may not realize how we're subtly pressuring them. You're allowed to be upset, but when I'm missing you, you'd better look happy while riding that smelly horse, or else I'll be worried and I might even call the camp. A mere 10 years ago, this demand on our kids literally didn't exist. We're on a very dangerous road here. When our kids are telling us that they're miserable, and yet we want them to smile for the camera anytime we demand it. If this isn't toxic positivity, I really don't know what is. It's all part of that message where we tell ourselves that staying positive must happen at all costs, at the expense of learning to accept occasional difficult feelings. And it's meaning that we're less equipped with tools to manage the hard feelings when life inevitably shows us some pain. Happiness is not avoiding difficult feelings. Happiness is having the faith that life is going to be a tumultuous ride at times, But not only can we lean into it and handle it, but that the downs are an important part of the picture, just like the ups. 
and that the downs often hold just as much meaning as the ups do. The downs have something to teach us. But this goes so against the culture that we live in, where unhappy feelings are just not as acceptable as happy feelings. Think of how uncomfortable most of us are with tears, whether ours or someone else's. I work with so many people who are horrified by the fact that they cried at work, that it's one of the worst professional things that has ever happened to them. Even the tiniest kids are told, don't cry. Don't cry. That's used as both an attempt to comfort and an admonition that you need to get your act together. By the way, it's so interesting that when we say, oh, don't cry to a kid, we never actually tell them how they're supposed to not cry or what they're supposed to do instead or why crying is to be avoided in the first place. It's all part of this murky, uncomfortable message that if we are upset, that will simply lead to bad, bad things. Well, bad things are happening. Depression and anxiety were rising before the pandemic, and then they spiked, and they still haven't yet gone down. And then there's the obvious point that bad things are always a part of life. Unhappy feelings are a part of life. Fear, guilt, anger, sadness, disgust, boredom, embarrassment, regret. These have been part of life since life began. And if we make these the enemy, then we're fighting against the very experience of living life. Human life is messy and risky at times. It hurts here and there. If we never let ourselves feel that having a reaction to that hurt is okay, then ironically, we add a whole new layer of hurt. And this hurt is coming from our own judgment. We're doing it to ourselves. It's like feeling the pain of a broken foot and then whacking our foot again with a hammer because we want to punish ourselves for having felt the pain in the first place. Why is it that we view unhappy feelings as some sort of failure? When we do that, we run a pretty big risk of making it tempting to numb those feelings. And here's the thing about numbing the feelings. It doesn't usually make them actually go away, and it denies us practice in dealing with them. So how can we deal with uncomfortable feelings? What does help those feelings pass? Well, opening ourselves up to them as a curious, gentle, and non-judgmental observer. This is the essence of mindfulness. And I know mindfulness is everywhere right now. Mindfulness in studying, mindfulness in eating, mindfulness in choosing your perfectly color-coordinated capsule wardrobe. Please let's not make mindfulness some project that we have to perfect, yet another achievement we have to check a box for. That would completely defeat the purpose. We just need to understand that when we can be curious and open about what we are experiencing, we allow for a deeper sense of self-acceptance, and we build our ability to be resilient through difficult feelings. And this, in turn, increases our ability to manage distress when it does come. Distress intolerance, very closely related to what we call mood intolerance, that's discomfort with discomfort. Discomfort squared, I guess. It's the inability to sit with negative emotions. And it's been implicated in so many psychological disorders. It raises anxiety. It contributes to higher risks of substance abuse, binge eating, obsessive-compulsive behaviors, and self-harm. 
And we inadvertently create this distress intolerance in ourselves by telling ourselves that negative emotions are scary and wrong, that bad feelings are something to be erased quickly. So we get used to avoiding negative feelings or willing them to go away, and we get less practice in managing them, which makes us even more afraid of them. But here's the thing. It's often the difficult emotions that have the most to teach us about ourselves and that give us the opportunity to find meaning and connect with others. Next week, we will have a second part to this, where we'll talk about some concrete tips of how to think about your negative emotions differently, how to shift your mindset to reject toxic positivity, and if you've got kids, how to make little changes in how you talk to them about emotions as well. We'll talk about new ways of thinking about the very experience of thoughts and feelings, and techniques from cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy, which some of you know me from in terms of my book, Detox Your Thoughts. I'm excited for next week, but I've certainly talked enough, or nearly enough, for now. To wrap up, I am not at all suggesting that simple joys are bad, or that pleasure shouldn't be sought. I love my cheesecake just like everyone else, deeper meaning or not. Have you ever had it with coconut and some dark chocolate? Anyway, I am also not saying that people who are depressed or anxious simply need to lean into their feelings more. They're already in so much pain. And there are so many things that go into depression and anxiety. Biological predispositions, cognitive components, life experiences, relationships, behavioral habits, not to mention trauma for so many people. The struggle is real, and in this podcast, we'll constantly be seeking to learn about all of these aspects of mental health and to not oversimplify anything, especially something as potentially devastating as depression or an anxiety disorder. But I truly believe that coerced, fakey happiness is damaging, that toxic positivity is a real thing. And that it probably does contribute to the mental health woes we see today. So as we start on this path together, I want my beliefs to be clear. That trying to force happiness or having happiness as a sole goal without a deeper sense of meaning or purpose, or believing that anything less than happiness is not acceptable, that's not how we'll run things going forward. All feelings are welcome here. Emotions, even unhappy ones, don't have to harm us in the way that we think they do. It's the idea that feelings can harm us, ironically, the idea that they're scary and to be avoided, that ultimately hurts us by making us, once again, less able to handle them. Experiencing an emotion is not the same thing as acting destructively on it. So, welcome to Baggage Check. I'm really glad you're here. The whole idea of this podcast is that we've all got baggage, just like we all have tough emotions. And baggage is to be learned from, not run from. We can face it, even if we can't quite bring ourselves to embrace it, and we get to choose how to move forward with it. This will be a space where nothing is off limits and where we don't seek easy answers or sound bites. This podcast's Instagram page will probably be far less attractive than most. This show will have jokes that will occasionally land with a thud. 
I'll take risks and learning about things with you. And I'll sometimes make mistakes. And we'll revisit and discuss and seek to understand. And hopefully there will be forgiveness. There will be times when we raise more questions than we answer. But that's okay. Because we don't always have every single answer. And I don't want to be an influencer. That club wouldn't have me anyway. I want to be a connector. I want you all to join me in seeking out truth and help and understanding. I don't need you to follow me. I want you all to gather around the fire with me or walk the path with me. I don't know. I've got a lot of metaphors here. I'll search out guests that challenge the status quo and listener questions that are tricky enough to sometimes make me uncomfortable. We'll face painful things and there will be mess. People who know me wouldn't expect anything less. But I promise always to use science, to practice compassion, and to value curiosity and empathy and connection. And to practice gratitude that you are here along for the ride. Thank you for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Submit your voice memos at baggagecheckpodcast.com. And if you have that quirky friend who likes podcasts about thought-provoking issues, please let them know where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Danielle Merity, and my studio security is provided by Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care.